0: All right, so here we are Tuesday, beautiful day outside, another podcast for Professor Latinx. I have Rolando and Zachary with me today, and we're going to talk about masculinities in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And just to kind of get us warmed up, um, you know, okay, three guys, three dudes here in the podcast studio, and, you know, just kind of generally, like, you know, what does it mean, first of all, to be like raised as a boy and then a man today? Um, and, you know, then how are we kind of interfacing and engaging with representations of masculinities that are thrown, been thrown at us, like in the, in the, the, the superhero movies. So Rolando, like tell us about you. Yeah. Oh, uh,
1: sure. Okay, great. Um, well, uh, it's, that's a really good setup for it because um, I was just thinking about what, kind of dynamic i operate under and uh being or growing up today i don't know if you want to call it a gen x millennial whatever um but my parents immigrated from mexico so i grew up with the machismo you know archetype kind of uh power structure and family um but you know like i also like and, and then growing up uh, a lot of my friends were first generation and we all have that similar familiar background but then you know like we're living in a time where there's so much discourse on what masculinity is. You know, 50 years ago, my dad wouldn't even be able to comprehend that. Uh, it's really interesting growing up in this time uh, because there's so many discourses that we're joining. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think the conversations are certainly uh, constructive. But uh, it's something that, you know, like especially first generation guys, we think about a lot because it's so in conflict with what we're used to.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Zachary, tell us about kind of, yeah, you too. Yeah, What,
2: like my childhood? Yeah, why not? Let's start there. The particulars of my childhood are quite inconsequential. Cookie to anyone who gets the reference there. Uh, no, I uh, had a father who was a prototypical masculine figure, but he had to be. His father died when he was two years old. His older brother died when he was 10. Uh, His mother was a nurse, so she'd be putting in 12 to 14-hour shifts, uh, and she worked nights a lot of the time, so he had to take care of himself. Uh, And that was uh, probably the greatest gift that he gave me and my three sisters was instilling that uh, sense of personal responsibility, hard work ethic, be independent, take care of yourself. Uh, So. He was a very hard man, though. That sounds somewhat similar to what you were saying about your father, Rolando. Uh, But I grew up in a house with four women. So I had both positive and negative attributes, masculinity, I would see. But I also had a positive reinforcing femininity that was around me growing up as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, masks and hardened bodies, Right. right? Of course, that's what the superhero universe is all about. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, looking back at mine, you know, my dad was mostly absent, and you know he was in Mexico City after we moved, and so, what does that do to a young boy, right? because of course, then they loom large in our imaginations, right they are they're like super heroic, they can never be like can never fail because we're not around to see that when I did finally see him, it was interesting that he actually made an effort to push against the way he was brought up by his dad. And I remember him actually like holding my hand and like, you know, giving me not just hugs, but also like a kiss on the cheek when he saw me, things like that. And like, that was huge for me, you know? Um, And then I was actually raised by two moms. So, I mean, getting back to that kind of side of things, but masks, hardened bodies, um, costumes, that's basically, you know, if we're going to turn this over into our discussion of the MCU, let's start with Iron Man, right? right? I mean, kind of maybe the first out of the gate in in terms of the studio universe to present us with this super type of masculinity, Rolando.
1: Yeah, um, I think a really good example... When we think about Iron Man, is uh, the role of the suit. Um, if you think of it from like a medical perspective, it's a prosthesis. But really, what what Tony Stark is doing, he's building and constructing his own masculinity. So when you see him flying or saving the city, you don't just see this robot. You see like a superpowered man saving the day.
2: Yeah, Zach. Well, it's uh, human ingenuity uh, overcoming this world that's filled with super soldiers and demigods and big purple cucumbers that snap their fingers. Uh, I guess the way I've always uh, looked at at least Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of the character, uh, but this could also be applied to the comics, is he's very much a Byronic hero uh, type of figure. Uh, He's attractive. He's wealthy uh we're given slight indications here and there that both men and women are interested in him to an extent yeah he's like this billionaire playboy figure yeah he he plays up all of the aspects that Bruce Wayne plays down
0: yeah. yeah that's interesting okay so armored exterior vulnerable interior right so and here he's 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 come face to face with his own mortality right in iron man 1 and in a way, he creates this shell to right to to uh, to protect that vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. And and but in many ways, that is maybe our father's.
1: I mean, when you uh, when you think about the vulnerability that it has inside, I think uh, especially uh, teen males, we kind of identify with that a little bit because we're kind of taught to guard our own feelings where we want to have some kind of protective shell over our emotions and our hearts and you know iron man has this affordance that lets him not only be strong and masculine but also do whatever he wants i mean he's a billionaire there's so he has so much access and uh so many ways to um to address like what he wants to do i think i think iron man as a prototype of like masculinity works really well
2: well, in in terms of the development of uh, RDJ's Tony Stark character, uh, he even refers in Iron Man three near the ending that uh, the, the suit was a cocoon or a chrysalis. Right. Uh, it, it was not just; a, it, it, it's an extension of him. It is a part of him. Yeah. That becomes much more literal with the nano machines there uh, in the later films, but. Uh, I, I, I think that's uh, very astute, that this was a protective shell that he yeah. had around himself, but he develops past that as uh, the MCU goes on. Yeah. That's
0: really interesting. I'm glad you brought up Iron Man 3, because it seems like that ending with Pepper Potts and the kind of promise he makes to be reformed yeah. um, is maybe showing a different side of – masculinities but one that's sanctioned by society that is family or coupling as a moment where you can now become vulnerable to the world yeah yeah
1: and um you know i um i, I can't help but bring this up but um spoilers if you haven't seen uh avengers endgame but um there's a scene when uh zach have you seen it yeah okay cool There's a scene like right in the beginning when you see Tony Stark getting picked up and he's brought back. And when he's put on this wheelchair, hooked up to an IV, he looks so frail and thin. And like that is really like like that really represents where his masculinity is at this stage. Like he's been so disenfranchised and taken away from what he knows. And I don't know. I thought that was like a really interesting representation of Tony Stark. Like you're really seeing him in his most vulnerable state.
2: Well, I mean, it's bookending with the first movie. Really, right. you have Tony Stark in a cave, uh, dirty, you know, disheveled, and everything else. There, we have the exact same thing right there at the beginning of Endgame. Uh, he comes out in a suit of armor in the first film. Uh, he sets aside his suit of armor for that five-year stretch in this film. So, I mean, it's it's polar opposites yeah. in terms of masculinity. Mm-hmm. We have the very aggressive masculinity in the first Iron Man. Versus a paternalistic masculinity that we see in Endgame until he's forced, basically, yeah. into a situation where, okay, I, I I have to be this hero again. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: What does that mean about his erasure, right? I wonder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, are we not allowed to be sensitive and caring toward other men as— stark is to peter parker
2: Mm. that's a that's a beautiful scene in that movie that's one of those ones that got me all weepy eyed there (laughs) as soon as he as soon as he sees peter doesn't say a word to him and just wraps his arms right around him and the response from uh tom hollands uh uh in that scene there where he's like oh this is nice right and you're talking about somebody he's his parents are dead his Mm -hmm. uncle's been murdered he doesn't have a masculine figure and he hasn't He's had a relationship with Tony Stark, but it hasn't been an intimate relationship, at least not from his perspective, until that moment right there. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I
1: like I I would even argue that there was a conscious effort to address that because um, there's a there's this really interesting scene in that final climactic battle where uh, certain forces start to come and then most, if not all, of the female heroes kind of mm-hmm. come together. And I feel that contrasting that with Captain America, seeing him in his old body, Tony Stark passed away, I feel like I feel like the MCU is now aware that it has to do something to address the overt masculinity.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think with uh, Steve Rogers, and we were talking about this before the podcast, I think we can all agree uh, that... He's basically the same scrawny kid from Brooklyn jumping on a grenade in the first Avenger that he is in Endgame walking towards Thanos' army before Falcon tells him in the headset, hey, on your left. Uh, He was willing to go on ahead and face him down by himself. Mm -hmm. Thor's down. Stark's down. Uh, That that, that character, I, I don't even define Captain America, at least within the MCU, as a masculine character. I think he is a walking, talking uh, flesh sack of virtue.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's
0: interesting. Actually, yeah. So I'm glad we brought up Cap America. Um, I mean, there's this, there's the his characterization is that look, he's so busy saving America Mm -hmm. that he doesn't have time for romance, Right. right? Right. I mean, yeah. Agent Carter we is is the kind of nostalgic she's mm-hmm. in that nostalgic space but it's not an active like you know I'm dating kind of romance right, right? and in game of course you know he's the one who's facilitating that the um the sort of group therapy right. um etc but let's talk about cap america and bucky yeah what you, yeah
1: i mean i um I think you know, like if you look back in the comics from the '40s, I mean, Captain America was straight up propaganda. I mean, he was, uh, you know, like uh, like a representation for like kids to read about the soldiers that are defeating the the that defeating the fascists in Europe. Um, so, because you know, like, and h- him being a stereotype is a kind of like caricature of a of a man. And what does that mean? I mean, strong, stoic uh you know like serving his country very dutiful uh no space for um no space for uh ambiguity or emotion uh so when we think about that and then think about uh where he is in the mcu um he was literally engineered to be a soldier so anything that was not related that cannot help him do his job was just kind of stripped away um so, you know, we think about that and then we think uh, where where is he in the first film? And there's I think more so in the second film and the Winter Soldier, there's definitely like a queer reading that you can do with Cap and Bucky. I haven't I haven't spent too much time uh, thinking about that, but there's certainly material for that. I mean, if I mean, if we if we go back, we can even think about Batman and Robin. I mean, that's certainly there's certainly a lot more material to dig there. But sticking to the MCU. Yeah, there's certainly something to explore.
2: Yeah, going on ahead and looking at uh, Bucky and Cap within the context of uh, the MCU, uh, I, I love the fact that there's actually a – rep, and we also have that with Sam and uh, Steve as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, platonic male friendships right. where there is this notion of being able to touch, being able to hug, being able to be intimate on a personal level in terms of discussions and things like that that I think are very – Uh, helpful. But part of me sits here and wonders, you know, how much of this uh, has become a construct of the 1950s on forward in terms of masculine behavior? Because we do have Cap, he's this relic from World War II. And he very much is, is, you know, willing to go on ahead and have these intimate, personal discussions and these relationships with other men. So how much of that is a product of cold war masculinity? How much of that is a product of cultivation through masculine representations on television and in the theater uh, versus, you know, what actually was masculine considered masculinity back during the depression and the second world war period.
0: Mm. I think it might be as close as we will be get to superheroes men male superheroes expressing love for one another right it might be um and they do it through gesture and all sorts of different things maybe not necessarily the words but you definitely cap and bucky i mean that is more than platonic friendship not i'm not saying it's sexualized but there's a real love there between the guys it's it's brotherhood
2: yeah is what it is
0: Yeah. yeah so of course you know, that leads to the question of, like, sanctioned spaces for that, right? So, super soldiers and the military, mm-hmm. you know, um, of course, there's always the I love you, bro, but right. it's still a space that has traditionally allowed for that, right? As opposed to, you know, meeting your bro that you love down on the, in the hallway of yeah. the university or right. something. yeah. Let's talk about some other pairings, though, because I think that's where we can see some interesting uh, interactions and maybe development. Um, Maybe let's you know, you know, let's look at um, uh, Stark and Rhodey, Stark and Rhodey, and maybe contrast or comparison. I don't know Hmm. Hmm. to uh, to Cap and and uh, Bucky.
2: I think the if, if we go on ahead and we look at Bucky and Steve as uh, having elevated their friendship to a level of brotherhood, uh, Stark and Rhodey, I, correct me if I'm wrong here on my interpretation, but I look at it as being a platonic uh, friendship that could go on ahead and reach that particular point if the circumstances had been right. Uh, Because we forget Bucky and Cap had decades together, you know, childhood friends growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, This is a lifelong friendship that the two of them have. Uh, In the case of Rhodey and Tony, that's something that was facilitated in part by Tony being in the arms industry. Uh, So I I, I, did. don't know if that relationship could ever reach that point because developmental stages throughout childhood i mean you going ahead and you make these intense connections with other people in your life whether it be parents teachers aunts and uncles best friends etc yeah
1: cool i mean um in terms of like in terms of like like coupling or like queer readings of mcu characters i think i've always i i, I think i've noticed like this presence between like uh tony and cap because there's so much tension between the two there's so much uh like so much of their of their characters when they're around each other has so much gravity and it's almost like you can like like you can feel it in the room when you when you see them together and it's interesting because in the later films like you see them grasping each other after they've reconciled so i mean i think there's certainly like some kind of like there's certainly like a like a queer pairing of Tony and Cap in a sense of these two partners that have been through so much.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. So pairings, combinations, I'm thinking about in game and Hulk banner, um, right? Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, so here we have in a way the, the, the history there is two, two characters in one body, or yeah. a body that transmogrifies, mm-hmm. and finally, like in Endgame, we're seeing something a little different. I don't yeah. know. What do you think, Zachary?
2: What, Professor Hulk? <laughs> Best character in the film right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we talked about this, uh, what was that, uh, about a week, week and a half ago, mm-hmm. uh, about how that was a character, Steve Rogers doesn't count, we've already established that, he's absolute perfect virtue. Uh, but In the case of Professor Hulk, you have the toxic masculine side that the Hulk represents this overly aggressive, destructive force uh, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And then you have Banner who is completely unable to go on ahead and come to grips with both himself as a person and with the Hulk as an aspect of who he is. So yeah, him achieving that balance over both his masculine side and his own social insecurities uh, I think that was a wonderful way to go in ahead and meld those two characters yeah. and take the best aspects from them.
1: Well, yeah, there's a really interesting scene in that diner when you see him the first time. And he says, you know, I always thought of the Hulk as this like disease, but I think of it more as like the cure. And if you think about it, I think, you know, like when you see the Hulk speaking or like when, like if you think about it, uh, Bruce Banner is saying that not the Hulk. So. So, yeah, like I think that's a really good um, analysis, like. He is, allowing, he is allowing the Hulk to address his you know, social anxieties and the pressure that um, that's some, that's something like social awkwardness has to deal with. Now he has this protective body around him. And it's complimented when kids, the kids come and take a picture with him. I mean, imagine if Bruce Banner... Like, no one would come up to Bruce Banner. And if he did, he'd probably shy him away. Here, it's like this vehicle that allows him to express or like, or at least like appreciate being around others. Like, yeah. he, like both banner and the Hulk can do that now.
0: I want to, mm. I want to move us uh, as we sort of begin to wrap up here to uh, black Panther mm. and Killmonger yeah. and masculinities as they interface with and are complicated by blackness, by being marked in a certain way in this world. And um, so not just the pairing of the two in terms of kind of masculinities um, being represented on sort of either ends of spectrums, but also what it means to be a kind of black man in the MCU.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, like I think one thing that we have to really appreciate about Black Panther is uh, the... Increase of representation because before this film we didn't really have a lot of black bodies like at all. We had we had Brody, and then we had Falcon. I can't really think of anyone else. Well, we had brown bodies, so Luis
0: right in the Ant Man. But yeah, yeah, you're right.
2: We for- we forgot about Sam Jackson. We've left him of alone. course right. Fury. Well, <laughs> yeah. he's so
0: cool like he doesn't hit his masculinities are like, you know. He transcends everything.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Um but yeah, what were you going to say Roland? No,
1: I was just thinking of um how, you know, like Black Bodies and Black Panther. Um I think it, it in the discussion of the MCU. I think uh that film does a really good job talking about like the spectrum of masculinity where we have uh T'Challa you know, like it's a kind of buildings remands for him. He's kind of discovering his own place and that involves, you know, like coming to grips with what masculinity is because yeah, we have Killmonger, but we also have um oh man, I can't remember his name. The leader of the other group, the other tribe. I forgot who it was. But you know, like I think of that and they're almost like two different uh ends of the ends of the spectrum. You know, like we have we have, like, the masculinity portrayed by the other tribe is um is just this violent, aggressive, very authoritarian. But then when you think of, of the characters, say, Forrest Whitaker, we connect him with being wise and, you know, diplomatic. And we wonder, like, where does T'Challa fall in that spectrum? It's almost like it's, you know, like, there's certain scenes where you can kind of track where he falls i think that'd be that's that's i think that could be really revealing for his masculinity
2: i did i was uh more interested in that film and how masculinity is constructed through geographic space uh more than anything else because t'challa uh if we were to define his masculinity it's a free blackness he grew up in a protected area yeah. Uh, that was not colonized, you know. There isn't this legacy of racism and slavery that exists in Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Killmonger growing up in the United States, yeah. we don't need to go in a history lesson on all that there. And they very much do go ahead and point towards Killmonger's toxic masculinity right. being a product of the legacy of colonialism, the legacy of slavery, the legacy yeah. of current racism That's against right. his people. Uh, So I guess that's what I was uh, most fascinated with in those two portrayals there and going on ahead and differentiating them along class, for that matter, in addition uh, to uh, uh, to the uh, geographic settings. That's
0: interesting. So intersectionalities necessarily also needing to account for. Kind of geographic location right yeah. and the histories that inform that location
1: yeah. and plus um i think it's important to know that the the masculinity um that exists in black panther is very much part of a binary uh when it when you think of Okoye and uh suri all those strong female representations um when you when you add that then you really get to think about where is t'challa on that spectrum because we are comparing him to strong women you know Mm. and i think i think like it's really difficult to talk about black panthers and masculinity without bringing up the women in the in the film because these are some really strong characters that we see and we kind of we even root for in the like the more times we see them
0: yeah that's great and uh that leads me to captain marvel really briefly finally we get um, you know, not only are uh, strong, smart female superhero, but we get some backstory, That's right. which we don't get with our other, you know, women superheroes in the MCU up to okay. this point.
1: No, I, I mean, I was just going to say um, one of the, I don't want to say controversy, but one of the criticisms of uh, Captain Marvel has to do with the uh, military messaging about the film like it's almost like a kind of message to young women to sign up for the air force and we can criticize that another time but you know if you trace if you trace the films there's a strong connection between masculinity and the militarization of the body because most of the characters that are not superpowered have some kind of military training
0: yeah that's interesting
2: I mean I, uh, I, I think that's why we have the uh, situation there with uh, the Cree, that's and we right. have Jude Law's character, and yeah. that represents the utmost extreme of that militaristic mindset yeah. there. Yeah. And we're supposed to juxt- juxtapose that with uh, Marvell and uh, the relationship that he ha- uh, she has with uh, Rambeau and Danvers back on Earth. So I did I I guess I when I was watching it I took the military messaging and I was looking at it within the context of the whole film and not just simply focusing on the fact right. that Carol and Rambo are both uh in the Air Force. Yeah. But I think um
1: and I'm not disagreeing with you. Um the one thing that stood out to me the most when I watched the film was uh the use of music in the film especially when you see certain fight scenes. Mhm there's a i'm you know like there's a reason why um Courtney love music is playing while she's fighting this is a char- a 90s feminist character that we associate with so you know like uh the thing that i really appreciate about captain marvel is that it's not weird to cheer for a female superhero that's that's one thing that we're trying to get to
0: yeah i love that and just to end I'll say um i will say that let's go take us back to that iron man <laughs> and Take note that well, ACDC is the is the sound that we hear oh, yeah, with mm-hmm. Iron Man, yeah. right? In contrast to yeah. what you were just talking about, so you know that kind of um, by convention, something that we have come to associate with a certain kind of a kind of a, a way of existing in the world as as a kind of masculine masculinities, right? Um, all right. Well, thank you both. And uh, this is it for mm-hmm. Professor Latinx. Thanks.